Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. Good morning to you guys watching online. Glad you can join us. Glad you guys are here. You look real cool with those sunglasses. It looks happening. Anyway, we're thankful to be here. Uh, thankful for Rick who put this all together to make it happening. Good job, Rick. Gil, if you're out there on the high seas watching on your cruise, what's wrong with you, man? Don't be... Um, Rick did it. He got it together. Oh, he's got a phone call, though. Important call. He's got to go into work now. Anyway, anyway, we're going to pause, and we're going to pray, and we're going to get started this morning. Father, once again, we set aside time because we know it's important. It's important for us to be mindful of you and to allow the vastness of who you are to permeate into our minds and to our lives and for the character of Christ who we follow to shape us. And we ask that through this time, those things would take place and we surrender this time and ourselves, our attention to you. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, that song like got me. <laughs> I'm like, ah. Wow, that's cool. Good morning. Some taking care of business. Uh, first thing, my daughter's not yet had a baby, um, but she is going in tomorrow morning if she doesn't have it by tonight to induce labor. So by tomorrow, should be a grandfather once again. And so, yeah, we're looking forward to that. Um, she, that little girl's just like her mom, a little late. Um, also tomorrow night, there is a city council meeting. I know that a few of us, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go depending on the baby situation. Um, but I know a few of us have been talking about just being part of the city council meetings to see what's happening in our city and to have a little bit more understanding of these areas. And so I invite you guys, if you would want to go, you're welcome to join us. Uh, anyone is welcome. And it is tomorrow at uh, what time? Seven o'clock at the city of Upland. So just so you guys know, if you want to attend, that can happen and you can join us. If I'm going to be there, I'm not sure. Again, it depends on the baby. Already, she's changing my life. Um, also, Next Sunday, we are going to have a potluck at my house. It's going to be Sunday at 6 p.m., and you all are invited. It's going to be general. We're not going to have a theme. 
Uh, it's going to be whatever foods you want to bring. We are going to have a place online. If you go to thegenesisstory.com, there will be a place where you can go and see what people are bringing and sign up to what you want to bring. If you're watching and you don't know where I live, when you sign up, they will send you my address. I'm not going to just give it out here right now, although you could probably find it pretty easily if you wanted to. Um, and bless you. If you know someone and who you haven't seen them, invite them. Tell them, hey, come on down. What I am going to do, I kind of decided, I think Bree, had, she dropped a hint in one of the text messages. I'm going to cook a brisket. I'm going to smoke a brisket for you all, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all in. No, it'll be about 17 hour. It'll be 17 hour. I'll start Saturday night, 7 o'clock, leave it on the smoker, at 10.30, 6.30, I'll wrap it, and I've got it down, guys. I've done it once. I shouldn't say I got it down, but I've, I've done it once. came out pretty good. This one should be better. So I hope you'll join me. This is a reason to celebrate and get together. It's going to be in my backyard. We had the backyard all uh, dolled up uh, for a baby shower, and so we're going to make the most out of that thing while we have it all cleaned up before the grandkids tear it up. So anyway, that's happening this week. So hopefully I will see you guys at my house next Sunday. Uh, Hopefully I'll see you here Sunday morning. And again, if you need my address, hit me up. It's not even five minutes from here. So if you're here, you could get there. No problem. Uh, Okay. I think that's it. Anything else? I can't think of anything. So we are starting the book of Exodus. Yes, yesterday. Last week, I had an introduction into the book. I talked about authorship. I talked about the historicity. We, we talked about this mythicized history and what that looks like. And we're going to step into this book now because there is a lot that takes place that shapes not only the nation of Israel, but shapes our faith because of that. And so start with me in chapter one, verse one of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, whom Joseph meant nothing, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." As we start, we remember that this book doesn't stand alone. It is one of five books, and it is connected to all of them. And we're going to see the imagery of Genesis here as well throughout these stories, and a lot in the first part. It it starts and it talks about 70 uh, numbered all of the descendants. And remember last week we talked about this mythicized history it probably was not exactly 70. In fact, in Acts 7, Stephen says it was 75, and he's quoting from the Septuagint that 
accounts it as 75 instead of 70. And if you're thinking, well, which is it, 75 or 70? I don't know. Welcome to ancient literature, right? We're understanding they're trying to make a point here. It's not literal or random, but it's a multiple of sevens symbolizing wholeness, symbolizing completion, that God is doing what he said he was going to do. It's saying to Jacob, his 70 offspring is the promise to Abraham and it is super fulfilled. I took care of what I said I was going to do. It is done. This is proof of it. And so that number is to tell us, look at how fulfilled that promise of God is to Abraham and to Jacob, who's Israel. And so that is the point of the number, not just to find out how many people there literally were. And all is proceeding according to plan, and the plan goes back to the very beginning in the Bible where they are to multiply and be fruitful and to increase, and we see that in verse 7. In fact, it happens so much that it became a problem. But this is a promise that we see throughout Genesis. We see it with, of course, Adam and Eve. We see it with Noah. We see it with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're seeing it again being fulfilled here. The words multiply greatly would be better translated as teeming or swarming, right? You get this, they're they're just everywhere. These Israelites, they're just like swarming the, the place. And that word swarming comes all the way back from Genesis, describing the waters teeming with sea creatures. The same phrase is used to describe the renewal of the creation after the flood, the promise to Abraham and the promise to Isaac, the promise to Jacob and to the Israelites living in Gosham, they are teeming, they are swarming. It is this constant repeating of what is happening according to what God said would happen to them. And so right from the beginning, the writer is telegraphing where the story is going. He's laying that foundation. You know that movie where you see that, oh, why did they show us that sign? That sign's going to mean something, right? They wouldn't just show a sign that says, beware of the water, sharks. You know, that means there's sharks going to come or something, right? And then we see that the response, the the new pharaoh in town, and he says, look, verse 9, the Israelites have become far too numerous. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. That word, come, we must, again, is the same words that were used in the building of the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build our city and our tower that reaches the heaven. Both acts pit one group against God. We're going to build our tower to God. We're going to deal with these people shrewdly, and neither of them go well. Right? You're picking a fight with God and you know it's not going to go well. And it continues in verse 12, I think. <laughs> but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Yahweh wants the children of Abraham to prosper, to be fruitful. Pharaoh, unaware of Yahweh's promise to Abraham, is trying to get out in front of a potential immigrant problem, and he's trying to squash them. He's treating the Israelites harshly and it backfires 
and things level up. In verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sephra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Drastic. Now, again, you have to ask a couple questions, at least I do. If there are potentially tens of thousands of Hebrews, there's got to be more than two midwives, right? Otherwise, these women are really busy. But these two are named. And it's interesting, too, that this Pharaoh, the one who is the semi-divine ruler over the nation, is not named. We don't know who he is. And we don't know why that is. It could be that it was so long ago that they don't have the account of that, but they do have the account of these two women, which I, I think is telling of how important it is when something happens and it leaves a mark on our lives, when someone does something that is good, there, there is a person like a Mother Teresa, there is a person who does something that is unusually noble or courageous, and their names stand out. And, and that's what we see here. So the storyteller includes them, their lives, and their, or their names in what they are doing. And the midwives go on to lie to Pharaoh because he wants them to, to kill the babies. And when he comes back to them, he says, Where, what's going on? They tell him, all these Hebrew women, man, they're just, they're tough, man. They just pop the baby out and they're there before we even get there. And besides, there's only two of us, you know? Who knows what it is, but they, they go on to tell Pharaoh a lie. And... and God ends up rewarding them, blessing them and their family, which for many people bring up a red flag. Is God rewarding a lie? That question, we have to step back and remember that the midwives are, first of all, women at that time. They are enslaved and foreign they are marginalized people in an ancient time, and they had to be clever when confronting unchecked power. See, to say that lying is wrong is coming from a viewpoint of privilege. It's wrong if you're not on the line for your life and those the people around you. If that is the case, then it is wise, and it is the right thing to do. And so when we start saying things like, well, you know, God doesn't like the fact that they lied, you're removing yourself from who these people are. And again, it, it's showing that you're probably not in that kind of a place. He rewards them by blessing their families and things just continue to escalate. Verse 22, the Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, does this remind you of anything in the Gospels? What happened with King Herod and killing all the young male children? It should, because in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is greater than Moses. And again, we're starting to see imagery show up, and they're painting a story for us so that we can get our emotion in it, so we can see how traumatic things are. And so then comes the birth of Moses. And you guys have seen the movies. You've seen the animated, you know, Prince of Egypt. 
but here it is written. This is where they got it from. We're going to go right to the source here. Chapter 2, verse 1, now a man of the tribe of Levi named, married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son when she saw that he was a fine child. She hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it on the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. When she saw the baby, Moses' mother, says that she saw that he was a fine child, and so she hid them. She hid him for three months. What would have happened if he wasn't a fine child? What's the opposite of fine and not so fine, unfine, crude child? What's happening here? Calling Moses fine is another echo of the creation story. The word Fine is the word tov. It means good. She saw him and it was good. In fact, we read that Moses' mother saw that he was good, which echoes God saw that it was good after each of the days of creation. And once again, we're seeing the creative work of God show up and now it's showing up in this little child. The mother's words are not just saying he was a good-looking baby, but a hint that this boy and his journey will be tied to the story of creation. And I find that beautiful. It just makes me want to pause. And being on the verge of having another grandchild, maybe even more emotionally so. I can remember the birth of all my children very distinctly. They were very unique in each one that was born, and there's things that stood out to me that this was special, right? The twins, they were special because there's two of them, right? Daniel, I remember when he was born, after he was born, one of the nurses asked, what's his name? And we said, Daniel, she started crying. She says, oh my gosh, it was her first time delivering a baby, and the name she wanted to name her child was Daniel, and it was overwhelming to her. And so we took this as, oh man, He's anointed by God, you know. And then Lauren was my daughter, my baby. And I remember wanting a little girl. And when she was born, I was like, it's a girl, it's a girl. And the doctor was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I go, wait a minute. What do you mean, wait a minute? I can tell it's a girl, you know. All of them were very unique. Even when Everly, my granddaughter, was born, this emotion of the future is bright because something beautiful is here now that will grow into it. And I wonder... What if we saw every child as good? 
Stephen, in his recounting of this, said he was no, or, or Hebrews talks about Moses and says he was no ordinary child. What if there was no such thing as an ordinary child? It's kind of counterintuitive because then, well, what is ordinary if they're not anyone ordinary? But you see, the point is this is good. This is not ordinary. This is tied to creation. God is doing something, and God can do something, and he's doing something through this baby, through a person, through a human being. The writer of the book of Hebrews wanted us to see this, and I think we need to hold on to that. What if we saw the child as this, every child as this, instead of some of the stories we tell them, putting shame on them, labeling them sinners from birth? Why was Moses good, but all these other kids aren't? What would the world look like if we saw the potential fulfilled in every child? What would our lives look like if we lived into that potential. Can you imagine how things could change if people believed that they were good and lived into that instead of into the things that we do live in? When the mother could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket, coated it with tar and pitch. That should sound familiar. It's like the ark that was coated with tar and pitch. It was lined to keep it afloat, and that's what God told Noah to do in Genesis 6. The word for basket is the word teva, used here in verses 3 and 5. It's the same word that appears 26 times as ark in the story of Noah. And so once again, we see the saving of humanity, the saving of the people And it's happening over and over again. The story is being told and it's being retold again. That Hebrew word is found nowhere else in the Old Testament. And tying these two stories together is theologically loaded. It is telling us what is happening, where it's going. It's telling us how this nation is supposed to produce or be an endurance of God's life in humanity. The story of the flood in Noah's day isn't about just there was a bad stretch of weather and it got really wet. It was nothing other than the chaotic, hostile world crashing down on how humanity was living, which is, again, reminiscent of what happened in the day two of creation where things were chaotic and God brought about life. There's the chaos, there's the life. There's the chaos, there's the life. God is doing this over and over again, which I find hopeful. <laughs> a lot of times I find myself in chaos. And it's like, hold on, life is coming, right? There, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? Kind of a thing, right? It's like, this is, this is bad right now, but you know what? God is always doing something to bring life. And he's done it, and he is doing that. Noah and his family are kept safe in the basket, the ark, and through them, life on earth will begin anew. The water subsides. Similarly, Moses is kept safe from the hostile waters of what's happening in this ark basket. 
And like Noah, Moses is the focal person for a new beginning for this new people. And guess where else in Exodus do we see the people being saved through water? The Red Sea. It's going to happen again. And then we go to the New Testament, and there's the baptism. Very symbolic. The idea of salvation is something that is connected all the way to the beginning of creation. It's like part of the DNA of the world. This cleansing that needs to happen within our lives that we see happening in these types here. The story of Moses is telling us a bigger picture about the God they believed in and what this God was going to do and see that these people were to be fruitful and blessed. He was going to deliver them once again. Now, the name Moses is interesting because it seems to have Egyptian flair to it. In Egyptian, the word mose roughly translate to born of, hence the names like Tutamos, right? King Tut. Or Ahamos, I guess that's another pharaoh. I only knew of King Tut. But anyway, these pharaohs mean born of the god Tut or born of the god Ah. And Moses, therefore, might be part of an original longer Egyptian name. We're not sure, but it's interesting. And there's some other things interesting about his name that we'll talk about later. But Pharaoh's daughter provides a Hebrew explanation to his name to draw out. In the Hebrew, Masha, which is vir- virtually identical to Moses' Hebrew name, Moshe. In fact, the ancient Hebrew was written without vowels, so they both spelled the same. And so... She's giving him a Hebrew name that means to draw out of the water. Why would she do that? Think about the scenario. Pharaoh just said, kill all the babies. Throw them in the water. Imagine now coming to dinner table. Hey, where'd the kid come from? Oh, I drew him out of... You drew him what? Out of where? Out of the water. Isn't that a giveaway? Why would she use a Hebrew name to name him something? Maybe she had it in for her dad. I don't know. Maybe she was a teenager. Who knows what was going on? But there's something that's happening here, and she's giving him a Hebrew name that means draw out of the water. Moses' name is probably not actually from Pharaoh's daughter, but more likely was put into her mouth by the storyteller because it doesn't really make sense that an Egyptian would use a Hebrew name that tells about what is happening in a time when it would be detrimental to him. Again, a final point on his name in history is some of the things that we see happening at this time. And this is why it was important to present the idea of mythicized history last week, because for quite a while, even though it's been unbeknownst to me until I started reading it, but a lot of scholars have noted that there is an account of Moses' birth that has a lot of things in common with a much older story, the birth of King Saragon of Akkad, which is where we get Akkadian from, who reigned around 2300 BCE, And like Moses, Sargon was born in secret, placed in a reed basket, closed with a lid, waterproofed with pitch, carried down river, rescued by someone drawing water, and raised as an adopted son. 
another story. This isn't saying that this did not happen, but it is saying that there are similarities and there are things that are being done in ancient history to try and bring about a point to help us see the stories from rags to riches. They're pretty common. You know, when you go to a movie, there's going to be a a very similar theme to most movies. You've got the the person who is going to come across as just living a mild-mannered life. It's a little Peter Parker going to school, whatever, you know, and then there's going to be the moment where he's bitten by the radioactive spider, something happens to him, and then he becomes a superhero and has to overcome, you know, Dr. Octopus or whatever the villain is at that movie, right? There, there is this theme that happens. The, the lowly becomes living into their potential, but to get there, they have to go through these valleys. It's not uncommon to see that theme. In fact, you can start a movie and say, I can tell you where it's going to go, who's going to be the villain, what's going to be the antagonist, and where is it going to show up? And it's not, no doubt happening in ancient stories. It happened a lot in ancient stories. It's giving us that flair of something incredible. In the Greco-Roman world, especially that of the New Testament, when the actual details of important figures' birth and childhood aren't known, it's not unusual to create details that match the hero's significance. And the classic example is the miraculous story of Romulus and Remus, future founders of Rome. And they were abandoned by a river as infants and raised by wolves. Really? No, but that was the story. Why? Because we don't know where these people came from who did these incredible things. So let's make a story that is fitting for the incredible life that they lived. Now, that'll do one of two things for you. That'll either freak you out and say, no, I can't take this, I can't handle this, or it'll help you to understand that sometimes we don't have language to put to for events that are bigger than what they seem. How do we describe a man who led a nation? How do we give a story that's big enough for the person who does something this great. And so telling these stories to try and elevate the importance of the person in the story is not uncommon, and it shouldn't freak us out. Here an Egyptian princess giving her fondling slave child a Hebrew name, let alone a theological significant name, seems unlikely, A hero's birth story overlapping is curious and actually well-known at that time. It's not coincidental. All this suggests that we are not getting just straight history in Exodus. An ancient Israelite writer is telling the story of Moses' greatness, what it meant to them, and creating a scene and dialogue that clearly communicate that greatness. This is their big screen TV, is hearing the story of Moses and what happened to him. And the kids by the campfire, all wide-eyed listening. What happened to the basket? Oh, she did. Oh, how did that happen? Oh, what did she name it? Oh, she pulled it from the water. Oh, what's going to happen now? Right there holding on just like you would in whatever the last movie is that you watched. Waiting to see what will happen. Chapter 2, verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, boom, there's a quick change, right? Okay, this is his baby, he's rescued, now he's grown up. 
He went out where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Nice job, Moses. Verse 13, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew. Isn't it interesting? You saw them fighting, and then you see the word hitting. When I see fighting, I think of arguing. No, they're throwing blows. And they're like, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Again, this is a foretelling. We know that Moses flees because Pharaoh finds out about it, and he runs for his life. Moses is going to try and help the people, but the people are going to complain. That's what's going to happen. It's being laid out here. He's going to try and deliver them, and they're going to rebel against him in that delivering process. He goes to Midian. Joseph went to Midian. That's where he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he's going to return from Midian to Egypt, and then he's going to go back with the people back to Midian. It's this kind of staging ground. It's like a, a dry run. Okay, you're going to go to Midian once, Midian, and then you're going to go back and get the people, then you're going to go back to Midian again. So get this, it's going to happen a couple of times. You're going to be used to this trek here. And he, like Isaac and Jacob, then finds a wife by a well. Wells are like the single bars of the day, right? It's where you go and you meet the, the wife. And so he goes there and he meets his wife. And, and during this long period, verse 23, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their crying for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It's wonderful to hear that God cares about the people in this condition. I think it would be wrong to say from this story that God is against slavery, although I do believe God is against and hates slavery. But in this story, it is specifically about the Hebrew people being enslaved to these foreign people serving other gods. And the reason I say that is because later on, God gives Moses laws where slaves, even Israelite slaves, are treated like property. And we have to just own that. But beneath the surface of that difficult thing to digest there are these beautiful words that take place in verse 25, where to us it's a little cumbersome. It says, so God looked on the Israelites and, it, and was concerned about them. Literally, it's God saw the Israelites, God knew. And it's one of those times where less is more. God saw and God knew. I, I think what happens so often is we have an understanding, but we have to try and fill in all the gaps of what we think God knows and what's going to happen and how it's going to happen and how God feels about certain things. And we just don't have the capacity to know those kinds of things. But maybe having the realization that God sees and that God knows can help us 
through whatever the things are that we are going through. Because if God is good, and if God knows, then God is going to want to do good in the situation. And I think we have a history of that taking place, even as we talked about through Genesis. There is an evolution that keeps moving humanity forward. And we're seeing that in its infant stages here where God is going to deliver a people. And then we're going to have prophets saying, yeah, God needs to deliver all the people. That's what the book of Jonah is about. And then we've got Jesus saying, love your enemies. Whatever you do to one, you do to me. And this is where we have seeds being planted that are so beautiful and so powerful that they have taken root over the centuries and has produced incredible things. Because there is no ordinary child. Because what God does is good. And because God sees, God knows. And that's enough to give us hope to push into what needs to be done. You see, the story isn't just that God saw and God knew. The story was God saw, God knew, God sent a man to accomplish what was good. What does God see and what does God know today? Who is he sending, if not us, to do good where we can in the world where we are at today? because you are no ordinary child. Let's pray. Father, I pray we take heart to these words, these ancient, powerful words, this story that is bigger than life, but so powerful in presentation and picture. May it provoke us to be a people who do good, who bring about change, who live into your calling for humanity. And I thank you again for the opportunity to wrestle with these things and allow them to shape us in our lives today. In Jesus' name. Great songs today, man. Um, Again, next Sunday. Six o'clock, my house, brisket, and whatever else you guys bring. May the God of creation inspire your imagination to live a life bigger than you can dream. Amen. God bless you guys. Stick around and have some time of questions and thoughts. God bless you guys. <laughs> you have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.